Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. Uh, because this is my first episode of the podcast, I just want to say a little bit more about me than maybe I would otherwise. Um, so I'm recording this right now in 2018. This is August 2018 when I'm recording. And uh, to date, I've published uh, six books or five books, depending on how you count them. Uh, I've got a self-published um, kind of experimental e-book that I sometimes count, sometimes don't count, because, because I don't know, I, I kind of come from the traditional publishing background, and so it being self-published, I know it's a real publication, but um, I just, uh, I, I tend to discount it when I talk about it a little bit. Um, so I usually say that i published five books by this point. Um, I've published, uh, I co-edited an anthology of poetry called Why Poetry Sucks, um, I wrote an academic book. You know, again, I've got a PhD in literature, um, and uh, I also have done a lot of. I did a lot of work in literary theory and in film, and I published an academic monograph uh, on a, a classic Canadian cult film called Crime Wave by John Pays. So the book is imaginatively called John Pays's Crime Wave. That's published by University of Toronto Press in a coordination with the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, and then the three other core books that I've done have been, uh, people call them poetry books. I don't really think of them as poetry books in many ways. Uh, you know, they are poetry, I guess. Um, the first book is, I also consider them experimental fiction. And my first book, Ex Machina, is about how machines have changed what it means to be human. And it's kind of a weird uh, choose-your-own-adventure flip book, but also a poetry book. Each poem has a number for a title you know, and occupies a single page. Uh, and each poem has a series of philosophical uh, kind of poetic statements uh, instead of the traditional lines and stanzas. And then each one is grounded or ended by a number. So you're flipping through the book uh, along, almost like in a hyperlinking way, connecting page to page, number to number, not reading in a linear fashion at all. Although, of course, you could read that way. In fact, um, it's kind of a weird choosing adventure poetry book in the sense that if you were to read it the way as you're supposed to read it, you know, flipping and linking, uh, you will not only never finish the book, there's no terminus position, um, but you will never read the whole book. Uh, there are parts that are, you know, unlinked in the numbering. So, you know, sometimes people read it cover to cover. In case that was my first book. Um, my second book was a book called Clockfire. Uh, and Clockfire is effectively a series of 77 plays that would be impossible to produce. Uh, so each poem, each play is more or less a little prose poem that describes or gives instructions for how to uh, mount this impossible play. Plays where you have to you know, burn the theater down with the audience inside. Uh, plays where you maybe uh, destroy the sun. Uh, plays where you are engaged in all sorts of you know nightmarish behavior, turning the audience into animals through uh, 
surgical interventions, um, traveling through time in various respects, uh, capturing a Sasquatch, you know, you know, all sorts of uh, strange, sort of impossible uh, plays. And then my third book, uh, The Politics of Knives, was a, a series of long poems, uh, some of which really resemble short stories much more than poems. Uh, and they all kind of revolve in various ways around spectatorship and cinema uh, and narration, narrative, I should say, um, storytelling, and how those things connect to one another and to violence. So uh, as a really simple example, there's a poem about the movie Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, long, lengthy kind of prose poem, uh, which kind of goes through the main uh, murder in Psycho, the first murder, uh, in a very kind of meticulous and strange, psychopathically um, cold manner. Uh, and then there are other poems in there that have, you know, a bit more um, emotion, I suppose you say, in them, but nevertheless are kind of uh, this strange, semi-surreal, um, again, very kind of deranged uh different approach and then i've got two so those are the five books i've kind of published at this point i also as i say have a self-published ebook um at this point it's really only available through my website jonathanball.com it's called this ebook is otherwise provided to you as is and um uh, it's effectively a series of prose poems constructed through collaging together various spam emails that i received all of which were actually collaging together weird classic literature from Gutenberg. So the spam bot had grabbed some text from Project Gutenberg and spammed it over to me for whatever reason. I was getting a lot of these in one period, and I ended up constructing a whole book out of them. Uh, so this ebook is otherwise provided to you as is, kind of experimental collage novel um, that, that in many ways becomes about uh, the fiction itself and kind of how fiction operates and doesn't operate and some of the strange disruptions uh, that we get, especially with technology uh, as a mediator uh, for our reading. Um, and then I have two books coming out uh, as of me saying this. I guess, depending on when you're listening to it, they might be out already. Um, I have a book called The National Gallery, which will be my next poetry book. It comes out in 2019, fall 2019, um, with Coach House Books. Who published, you know, two of my previous books, and the National Gallery is a, in some ways, more traditional book of poetry. Um, in other ways, it's a very unusual a book. I don't want to say too much about it because I'm currently in the editing process. Um, so it, you know, the book may still change significantly, although probably not too significantly at this point. Uh, and then after that, in 2020, I'm going to put out a book of short stories uh, with uh, the press book thug or book hug or uh, whatever they changed their name to i guess they might have changed their name as a press by then um uh, you can kind of google this if you want but there is some controversy over the name book thug so they've decided to change it uh, at some point um in the meantime they're kind of going by book hug with the kind of asterisk in place of the t um but anyway they're going to publish my short story book in 2020 um, the title of that book might change, so I don't know if I'll say it at the moment, but uh, the point is that I've published a lot of different stuff. <laughs> you know, I've published, in terms of books, I've published quite a diverse array of things. Uh, I'm known for uh, doing some 
experiments. I'm known for kind of non-standard, unconventional work. People think of me as an experimental poet. Personally, I don't think of myself that way. Uh, you know, I, nobody seems to agree with me, but I consider myself an author of horror fiction, of weird fiction. Um, but, you know, agree to disagree. Uh, outside of books, of course, I've published, I don't know, a, a, a ton of things. I've written short films, I've written uh, feature screenplays, um, you know, for independent features. Uh, I've written, I used to write a, po I write a poetry column that's on my website as well. Uh, haikuhoroscopes.com uh, it's currently not in print it was in print for many years and uh, now I'm looking for another print home but haikuhoroscopes.com if you want like really uh, kind of silly somewhat borderline offensive uh, haikus <laughs> as horoscopes and, you know you can go every week there's new um, haiku horoscopes at haikuhoroscopes.com and I've written, you know, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of things. You know, it's not an exaggeration. I've written almost every genre uh, from, you know, true crime TV show uh, scripts to, you know, like I say, haiku horoscopes to, you know, dry academic papers to strange experimental poems, um, fiction, uh, you know. I'm not a master of all these genres by any means, but again, I've got a lot of experience as a writer. Um, the reason I've been able to do a lot of different things is that I have, like I said earlier, a very analytical approach. So, um, you know, I'm not the most talented writer in the world. I like to say that I don't have a lot of talent. Uh, but what I do have is um, you know, a drive, and I have a dedication and a seriousness to what I do. And I have a very analytical approach. Like, you know, I've got a PhD in literature, and I've I got that specifically to apply it to my writing, you know, because I, I really wanted to understand literature on a very uh, deep and um, analytical level. So I've kind of applied that approach to my writing. I think it would help you to apply that approach to your writing. Um, people always come to me and ask me questions. Um, I can't necessarily answer every question, so this podcast will be sometimes be me talking, but other times, of course, I'm going to bring guests in, you know, and discuss the topics with them and go into real depth. Um, I have a bit of a frustration with writing podcasts and writing interview shows. There are some good ones out there. Um, Super Pulp Science is my favorite probably at the moment. Uh, my friend Gregory Kamichik and uh, Justin Curry do Super Pulp Science. Um, which kind of focuses on genre fiction and genre artwork and so on. But uh, it's an excellent show. Uh, I find a lot of the shows that I listen to, though, have a sort of a weird superficiality to them. Uh, and they don't really go very deep on subjects, which I find frustrating as a writer, you know, wanting to listen to other writers. I find it strange also, you know, for a writing show where you're talking to these writers. You know, they spent who knows how long, you know, depending on the person writing at great length you know hundreds and hundreds of pages on some topic and then you often just have these people skimming the surface in interviews you know running through interviews questions set and i don't know it's just very strange to me i would think writers in general would just be better at being interviewed which i guess they're not always and uh, i would just think interviewers of them would be better um and you know like i say there are some good ones out there but 
I just find it personally be frustrating. So I'm sure other people have that same frustration. Uh, at the same time, I also just don't really uh, find that people talk in too much detail and depth about certain aspects of their writing process. Um, I'm not sure why this kind of cult of mystery has sprung up around various aspects of the writing and publishing uh, world. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there to demystify the publishing industry, um, although it is still kind of mysterious, I think, to many people. But you can go find a lot of material that will, you know, attempt to break it down and demystify it. Um, there is some stuff uh, like that for the creative process, but I find for the most part, even if you're reading a book, you know, that's supposedly attempting to teach you a thing, it, it often just defaults to there's some mysterious aspect of this process that no one understands, which I don't think, uh, I mean, that's ridiculous nonsense. You know, I'm a complete uh, skeptic of all things, uh, particularly a skeptic of mysterious claims to writing grandeur. Uh, and so I really like to spend some time here by myself and with my guests, um, just kind of breaking that various myths apart and just getting away from this idea that your know, writing has some sort of mystery or magic to it. Writing is a boring, uh, workmanlike process, and you can do it, um, and I can do it. And there's no reason that it has to be shrouded in strange garbs. So, with uh, you know, without further ado, um, let's just kind of dive into uh, the topic for this first episode. What I want to talk about in this first episode is the foundations of being a writer and what I think is the fundamentals of uh, being a working artist of any type, whether you're full-time or part-time or aspiring uh, to be full-time or aspiring you know, to kind of make it your day job or whether you just want to do it on the side. If you want to be serious about it, you want to be a serious artist, you want to adopt a professional attitude, whether or not it's actually making you money as a, your profession, uh, I think there's some foundational aspects that you have to focus on. Uh, and the core fundamental one is that you have to establish and maintain a creative practice. Now, I use those two words very specifically. When I say creative, I don't just mean you know writing poetry or fiction uh, or something that we typically think of as creative writing. Uh, I mean any sort of creation practice. Uh, so I consider my nonfiction to be uh, you know creative in that sense. It's a thing that I'm creating. Uh, if you were not a writer, but maybe a visual artist, maybe it's a painting, uh, whatever it is that you're working on. Uh, that you're creating. If you don't have a creative practice of some sort, um, you really can't have a career uh, in any meaningful way because you're not creating anything. And the second word there is practice. Uh, I really think that that word has a lot of uses in terms of thinking through this concept. One is the uh, connotations of a regular thing that you're doing in a regular basis. Uh, and the other aspect of that is practice in the sense of a, again, th this disciplined uh, pursuit. Uh, but also, I think it's important to think 
of your work, your artwork, are paradoxically not as art, but as work. And I think practice um, is a nice kind of word to get around and to connect to creativity in the sense that it's not just that you're an artist, you're not just creating things, but you're doing work. And again, uh, the cornerstone to me of everything is a creative practice. And there are two sort of things that I see as foundational to that. Uh, one is to have a priority activity. So uh, whatever you may do in your creative work. So for me, I uh, do poetry. Uh, I write fiction. I write nonfiction. Um, sometimes I write humor. I write articles. Uh, I, you know, I'm making this podcast right now. Uh, all those things I consider you know, part of my creative practice. Uh, but at the center of it, uh, the most important thing that I do as a creative uh, professional uh, changes. Right now, this part of my life is prose fiction. So I write prose fiction. And that's the cornerstone of my creative practice. That's my priority activity. That's the absolute foundational thing that I do. So even though I may spend more actual time in my day on other projects, so right now I'm doing a lot of my creative time is spent on a screenplay, uh, that project that I'm working on uh, for a director. Even though that is maybe my fundamental uh, time sink in terms of where I spend my creative time, I still start you know, every workday with prose fiction. I do... Uh, 300 words of prose fiction every day. Roughly 300 words every morning. This is, uh, prose fiction is what I do. Uh, now, I say roughly because <clears throat> I don't, unlike other people, I don't have a standard quota for the day. What I do is I have a priority project for the year. Uh, and so right now, my priority project is a book of short stories called Stranger Fiction. Um, and so at the start of the year, or you know, the start of doing the project, um, typically the start of a year, I set uh, a deadline in my writing program, Scrivener, and I set a rough word count, an estimated word count of how long this project is going to be. And then that's what I work on every single morning. A Scrivener tells me, it masks out, you know, it, one of the nice things about Scrivener, and I have a blog post about this, uh, writing targets in Scrivener, which I'll link to in the show notes. So you can take a look at a different little video where I explain uh, what this function is and how to use it, more or less. Uh, one of the nice things about Scrivener is it has these sort of project targets, and it can you can tell a Scrivener when your deadline is, um, how long your project is going to be roughly, you know, how many words, and then you can tell what days of the week you're going to write. You know, you can have what when are you scheduling your writing time. So you know, I typically uh, set that up at the start of the year, and then Scrivener every day uh, when I wake up and turn the program on, uh, open the file. Scrivener tells me how many words I have to write that day in order to keep on track to finish my book by, you know, such and such a date. Um, and so just depending on when I set that date, you know, I might set it earlier in the year if I want uh, time to redraft later in the year, uh, or I might set it, you know, late in the year if I'm just sort of focusing on a, having a draft done, you know, whatever it is uh, that I'm working towards, that's my priority project. And I have one uh, priority project Right now, my priority projects are fiction, prose fiction, even though I've got other projects that may take more of my time uh, in a day. So right now, again, I'm writing a, a 
usually it's work for other people. So I'm doing a screenplay for somebody else. Um, I'm involved heavily in that screenplay, but you know, technically I'm sort of working with this director, even though in that specific project I have some you know creative control and power and ownership as well. Um, but in other scenarios, I might be doing freelance writing uh, for another person, or uh, again, just might be doing a screenplay of some sort. Uh, I don't make screenplays my priority projects because by definition, I can't realize them myself. You know, I can't uh, write a screenplay and then make a movie. Uh, I would need millions of dollars to do that. Bare minimum, you need half a million, million dollars to do a low-budget uh, screenplay. I don't have that much money lying around, so I don't consider that my priority. Uh, even though it may have a deadline and it may be work I'm doing for somebody and somebody's paying me and so on, um, and it is a, pri- a priority in the sense that it's important and it's something that I'm doing and I'm working on and I'm serious about. It's still not the core of what I do uh, because the core of what I do is a self-sustaining, completely under my control uh, thing like uh, books. I can write a book. Um, I can find a publisher for a book. When you're working with a publisher, even though you may be, again, kind of working for the publisher in a certain respect, in reality, you're really licensing the work. You still maintain copyrights and controls. Uh, you have a lot of control and say, a lot of creative control when you work with a publisher. That's one of the myths that people who don't know much about publishing have. Of course, you also have the option of self-publishing. So even if I couldn't find a publisher you know, for my prose fiction, I could publish it myself. I don't have that same option with the movie script. And so to me, uh, there's always a level of speculation in, say, the movie business uh, or in some other area. Uh, what I want to have is a priority project. You know, One thing that is my fundamental core thing that I focus on before all else that is completely in my control and that I can completely realize myself should I desire. Uh, as opposed to you know, a project that maybe on a daily basis I spend more time on, but that doesn't necessarily uh, move me forward uh, towards my fundamental goals in the same way. And if you look at my fundamental goals, you know, if I take a look and think kind of down the line, where do I want to be in the future? Well, what I want to be is in a position where majority of my income from writing, it is from writing, one, and two is from is passively derived from writing. In other words, the majority of my income in the future I would like to have from products that, you know, like courses, you know, and ebooks and books in stores and other things that are just being sold, uh, you know, by machines, by other people. Uh, you know, I would like to be able to be in a situation where. Uh, my creative work is self-sustaining and I can do things like take, you know, a year off or take a month off and still have that income coming in. Now, that's a very difficult position to get to. You know, it's very difficult. You know, I don't want to undermine its difficulty or suggest that it is in any way uh, an easy thing to do. And I, and I certainly don't mean to suggest that I've achieved that. Uh, but I'm never going to get to that position. You know, I can never get to that place if I focus on other things that are not uh, directly feeding towards it. And so it's very easy to do that. It's very easy to think, oh, I'm not going to work on my novel because 
somebody's paying me to write an article for them, or I'm not going to be working my novel because I'm busy teaching a course and I just don't have a lot of time right now, or I'm not going to work my novel because who even wants to read it? Maybe I'm no good as a novelist. Maybe I'll never make it, and so on and so forth. You know, it's no, it's no good to think that way. It may be true. <laughs> you know, you you may actually have better things to do in your life, uh, but you will never fully know. Uh, you'll never get to that place. At the same time, you don't want to be delusional. You know, you don't want to be spending all your time and all your money. You know, you don't want to take two years off work and spend your whole life savings in pursuit of writing a book and then have this weird lottery ticket dream that the book is going to, you know, become the new thing for you. It has happened in history, but for the most part, it's not going to happen, uh, especially, you know, not for you, you know, unless you happen to have some weird, um, lightning strike luck. And it's really, you have to be, you know, I've known people who've gotten struck by lightning multiple times, but I've, you know, I know very few people who've had a best-selling book that, you know, sustains a career. Even a best-selling book doesn't often sustain a career. And so uh, it's kind of a weird mind trick, but you have to sort of really focus on thinking through what are your goals down the line what is the activity today that will feed towards those goals? You know, and you have to kind of have a, a, again, a creative practice where you have that as your priority, even though you may be doing many other things and these other things are going to maybe pay the bills or even just be obviously better uses of your time. You still need at least that small space uh, that you're going to carve out before anything else. Uh, for the thing that you think is your priority, the thing that down the line in the future you really want to be your focus. You have to kind of do the weird mind trick of making it your focus uh, of your mind, if not of your time. Uh, So the second thing kind of related to this creative practice, you know, the second core element in my view is a schedule. And I've uh, talked about this at length. You know, people are sick of me talking about it, I'm sure. But uh, if you're not sick of it or you haven't heard me discuss it in great detail, uh, go to my website. Uh, Again, you should be some show notes for this podcast episode. I'll have a link in there to one of the most popular posts I've ever written, which is about writing schedules, you know, why you should have a writing schedule and so on. And then also through my website, of course, uh, you can sign up to my newsletter, which is a special uh, you know, weekly missive called Recommended Artistic Consumption. And in that, every week I send somebody, uh, you three things in sort of one email. Recommended Artistic Consumption, uh, a thing that I think you know, I really recommend as a book or a movie or whatever it is, something that I recommend you consume. Uh, I send you a trick or a tip or just some advice about writing, sort of writing, you know, hack as the uh, hacks like to call it. Uh, and then I um, send you a writing exercise. So a thing you can actually use as a prompt or just some sort of uh, experiment that you can try in your own work. Uh, but when you sign up for that newsletter, you, you'll get an ebook. Uh, it's a very short, sort of 20 page ebook, and it's called uh, Five Ways to Create and Maintain Your Writing Schedule. And I think that is the foundational uh, cornerstone of all these. Even if you don't have a creative priority, 
if you have a writing schedule, you know, the schedule will save you. I'm not going to go into the, you know, all the reasons you need a writing schedule. Again, I've talked about this at length in other places. You can go read that ebook. That'll tell you not only why you should have a schedule, but give you some really practical advice about how to create one that you can sustain and that is um, also has a routine involved inside of it that is going to make it easier to write, going to make you more productive, and so on. And again, you can also you know read that blog post uh, that I'll link to, um, uh, which is about how why you want to write a schedule, some of the science behind it, uh, and philosophy behind it, and so on. All I'll really say right here uh, is that you need to keep the knife sharp. And what I mean by that is. People often say to me, well, you know, you tell me to have a writing schedule, and that's the sort of first piece of advice I always give anybody. Um, you know, people, I always ask people, what is your biggest problem as a writer? And invariably, uh, the number one answer that almost everybody gives is that they have a hard time finding time to write. So I, I turn it around on them a little bit because of course you can't find time to write you can't find time for anything every time somebody says it to me I imagine them you know stumbling through the dark woods one day and they trip and then they you know have tripped over a treasure chest half buried in the ground they dig up the chest they open it and inside is all this time to write you know that's what finding time to write would look like Uh, of course you know that's not going to happen people also say well Maybe I just need to make more time to write. You know, maybe I just need to make more time to write. Well, again, uh, how are you going to do that? You know, um, as a writer, I like to pick away at these little words that people use um, because they do reveal your mindset in many respects. Even you know, a bit of a Freudian slip, I think, in certain ways. If you are trying to make time to write, again, what do you, what do you, what is your plan? Are you going to go in the kitchen? You know, grab a bit of eye of newt and mix it up with some uh, nutmeg. Like, what, what are you going to roll that around? You know, add some lemon juice, and all of a sudden, you know, bake at four fifty for an hour, and you've got, you've made time to write. What you really need to do, in many respects, uh, is write. You know. The time is there, uh, whether you like it or not, whether you are using it well or not, uh, you're moving through time. <laughs> you don't have to find it or make it. It's just running. Um, so unless you want to move at the speed of light uh, or approach the speed of light and start to kind of slow that thing down, you know, bend time in a manner of speaking, um, you're barring that, you really are just moving through your time anyway. Uh, what you need to focus on is not, it's just scheduling it. You know, you just need to schedule your time. Schedule time to write. And that's, of course, the obvious solution. If you feel like you have to find time or make time or whatever, you just have to schedule the time. It's easier said than done. And, of course, once you do schedule it, there's the question of how to best to use the time within you know, you're scheduled. You know, how do you use that scheduled half hour or whatever it is? Um, the thing to keep in mind to, at the start, if you don't already have a schedule, and again, I'm not going to go into extreme detail about this, but if, the thing to keep in mind is that it is fundamentally important to have a schedule. What the schedule is is not as important, and people get very wrought up 
are caught up and kind of put themselves through a ringer um, thinking about how much time should they be writing, what time of day should they be writing, you know, how often in a week should they be writing, et cetera, et cetera. And people, you know, will research when's the best time to write. And, you know, I've seen people like Googling articles uh, about how much do they need to write in a week and so on and so forth, but yet they're not just writing. Uh, If you find yourself doing a lot of research into how to you know, best right. It's not that that's bad to do, um, but you should have written first. You, you know, if, you, if you're already writing, then you can do all those other things. Uh, if you're not, you need to have a schedule, even if you don't produce much in that time. And even if you don't have a lot of time that you schedule, the schedule is the thing, you know, as Shakespeare should have said, uh, no, not the play is the thing, but the schedule is the thing. The schedule will save you. Uh, and even if you're turning out garbage in the schedule, uh, that's not the point. The point isn't to do good writing. Uh, the point is to do writing. Uh, and the point is not whether you feel inspired or have you know good ideas or something that's worth working on. The point is to do the work of writing, no matter what, whether you're working on a good project or a bad one, whether you have good ideas or bad ideas, whether you are inspired or uninspired, whether you are sick or well, you know, you don't necessarily have to work every single day, um, but you have to schedule the time. And then if you are tempted to take a day off, you know, if you wake up one day and you just feel like garbage, take the next day off, but don't take that day off. You know, have your schedule and stick this schedule. If you do modify it, you modify it in the future. When the time to write comes, uh, you don't change it. You know, you don't change it. Uh, you know, you, you don't give in to the temporary weakness of being tired. If you really are tired, and you really that you know, it could be a sign you're burned out. Could be a sign you need a break. Could be a sign you've been overworking yourself. If that's true, then tomorrow you take the break. Today, you have to do the schedule. Uh, what you'll often find is, you know, it's not true. You're just trying to trick yourself or talk yourself out of the writing that day, which is, you know, fine. It's what people do. Uh, you, just, you know, the point is to not give in. But again, maybe you need a break. Maybe you need to take that time. But anything is better than nothing. Any scheduled time, uh, having that scheduled time is the most important thing. What the schedule is doesn't matter so much. What you're doing doesn't matter so much. The point is that you're in there and you're doing it on a schedule so that you get used to, your body and your mind both get used to having uh, this ability to write on demand. And once you kind of build that muscle up, it does take a while. You know, When you first start doing the schedule, it's very hard. Um, or if you've been off a schedule and you're trying to get back into it for a while, you know, it takes a while. It's very discouraging to get to the point where you're kind of producing good work on a regular basis and you're able to really, you know, move into writing well. Uh, but the fundamental thing is to just get on the schedule. Again, no matter what it is, people get very hung up on it. Doesn't matter how much you're writing. Doesn't matter how good it is. It just matters that you're doing it on a regular, consistent basis because you're training yourself. You're training your body. You're training your mind. And what you, and you're keeping your skills up. Even if you're turning out garbage, you're keeping your skills up. And if you're not inspired, you're keeping your skills up. I like to 
compare it to keeping a knife sharp. You have to keep that knife sharp. And every day you sharpen the knife. You sharpen the knife. You do it at the same time. Uh, You do it for the same amount of time. You just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And one day, when you sit down with that knife, you will be inspired. And you will have the great idea. And then you can cut. You can get in there. uh, You can tear that thing apart. If you have him practicing and you have him keeping your knife sharp, you can't make those fine cuts. And when you do get the idea and you do have the inspiration, you're going to come in there with a dull knife and you're going to ruin everything. And if you've ever had that experience where you just feel like you've got this great idea and you're ruining it, maybe you're wrong and that's just an emotion, but maybe you just haven't been keeping your knife sharp. Uh, and don't do it again. You know, keep that knife sharp. You know, this is why I have done more work and better work than some of my peers, even many of my peers. You know, when I say something like that, I think it probably sounds egotistical, but um, I don't feel that's the case. You know, I don't think I'm a better writer than most people. I just think I'm a better worker than a lot of people. You know, and I know so many people who are better writers than me, but have not turned out um, as much good writing on a as consistent a basis. So again, not that I'm better than those people. Um, in many ways, I'm worse. But I keep that knife sharp, and I can just you know, slice, 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 slice. And I can do it a little faster than somebody else. I can do it a little better than somebody else. Not because I have a lot of talent. I don't have that much talent. But I kept that talent sharp. And you don't really need talent. You need to hone your skills. I mean, it's great if you have talent. I wish I had more. But the main thing is to work and to have that um, that knife and to keep it sharp. Now, once you've got a creative practice in place, whatever it is, exact, again, the details of it are not significant. If you're writing, you know, poetry for three hours a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Uh, you know, an hour each day or whatever it is. If you're writing for 15 minutes every morning, working on your memoir, whatever your creative practice is. Uh, once you have that creative practice, you need to reduce op- friction. You know, reduce the friction, remove the obstacles. Uh, probably, if you are having a problem doing that work, uh, there's a few things that could be getting in your way. There are a lot of common things that people have that get in their way. Uh, but whatever it is, uh, you need to figure out what's getting in your way. You know, what is preventing you from sitting down and doing the work on the days when you don't? Um, what is preventing you? And you need to think that through from the smallest thing to the largest thing. Maybe you're not making progress on your memoir because you're terrified what your father would think. And it's blocking you in a really sort of psychological way. Well, if that's the obstacle, then you need to go talk to your father. You know, you need to go put that thing out there and discuss it. Or whatever it is. If you're having uh, problems on your novel because you just, it feels like a disastrous mess. Well, maybe you need to write an outline. Uh, maybe you need to learn more about novel structure. Uh, maybe you just haven't been reading in the genre enough. Um, 
while you're doing that research and while you're going and talking to your father, you still keep working. You know, again, don't let um, something like that, like I need to do more research, that's a really common obstacle that people have. I need to do more research. Well, maybe you do need to do more research, but you also need to draft. And it's more important to keep the knife sharp than to do research. Both are important, but you keep that knife sharp. The research is secondary. This is where, I, again, I say something is a priority. The draft is priority. The research is secondary. You can go back to the draft and revise it to put in the research. Um, so if you identify an obstacle like that, you know, I feel like I don't need to do more research, for example. Remove the obstacle. Start doing the research. And while you're researching, while you still don't know what it is you're doing, you've got a couple options there. One is you could just shift your priority to a different project. Um, so you're researching you know, this project, but you're going to work every day on this other project. If you've got multiple... Pro- I don't really advise that in a normal scenario, but there are sort of... Uh, a few limited examples of when that kind of thing would work well. If you jump around from project to project all the time, you're not going to make progress in any way. Uh, but if you only have like two big projects, you're jumping between them, that's a bit more sustainable. Uh, another thing that you might do in that scenario where you know you feel like you need to do more research is just as you're doing the research, again, keep drafting on this project. That's what I would typically advise. But be okay with writing a terrible draft. Go, you know, it, call it your zero draft or whatever you want to call it. Um, but just become comfortable with the failure every day. You know, every day you're working on it at least. You know, when you sit down, make part of your writing schedule a little, you know, before you start writing, you take on a piece of paper and write on the piece of paper, you know, I give myself permission to write terribly unresearched garbage today. You know, write that down on a little piece of paper and look at it or just write it out like lines on a blackboard five times or something before um, you start the drafting. Because the worst thing you can do is get off the schedule for any reason. Again, it doesn't have to be every single day, but whatever your schedule is, uh, keep that schedule. Keep that priority. But sometimes it's not a big thing like that. Sometimes it's just smaller stuff. You know, uh, maybe your computer takes a long time to load up. And, you know, by the time it loads up, you're kind of burned, you know, you're distracted now. You sat down to write, then, you know, it took three minutes to load up your computer. You're kind of out of it now, you know. You lost, you start looking at something else across the room or whatever, and you just sort of, you know, just that couple minutes just took you out of the zone or, or, you got distracted by Facebook because you know you turned you, you know your computer you turned your computer on and then you started before you opened the writing program you thought oh I'll check my email and now you're in the email suck and or you got you know you decided to check in on Twitter then you got drawn into that maybe the friction is kind of smaller in that way uh, Jonathan Franzen famously has a laptop that he disables the ability of the laptop to go online. I think that's a bit of an extreme example. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that um, for a lot of reasons, but if that's the friction, you know, if that's the thing that's preventing you from doing the work, then sure. You know, it's all one of those weird software things that keeps you offline. I just do really simple things. I turn my, uh, I just turn the 
and turn it off. So what I do every night before I go to bed uh, every night is I load up, I turn all the, everything on my computer off, like shut down all my programs as if I'm going to shut it down for the night. Um, but then I open up my writing program, you know, Scrivener that I use. I open up the project that I'm writing on, you know, Stranger Fiction is what it is right now. And that's the only thing open on the computer now. Then I take the computer offline. So I take the internet off. You know, I don't crash, I don't, you know, set fire to the port or anything, but I just, you know, you know, go offline. And then I close. I don't turn the computer off, but I close it down. And then I go to sleep. So the next morning when I come to that desk, all I have to do is open the computer up. You know, screen comes on automatically. I'm already offline. My work is already in front of me. I click that little button that tells me uh, how many words I have to write that morning to keep on track to get my you know 100,000 or whatever it is that I've set it for um, in by the end of the year or whatever deadline I've picked. Just the friction of turning it on, the friction of loading up the program. Just I just try to remove as much of that friction as possible. And for you, it might be something different, but whatever it is, um, whenever you catch yourself uh, not writing, uh, at some instant where you feel like you should write or you've scheduled to write, um, or even just being slow to the writing, you know, you start, you decide you're going to write at seven o'clock and you start at seven ten. Uh, whenever you catch yourself doing in that sort of scenario, figure out what was the friction. You know, what was the obstacle? What's kind of slowing you down or keeping you back? You know, maybe you need to drink coffee first. Uh, maybe you need something to eat. Maybe you need some water. Maybe you need um, the laptop to be on. Maybe you need uh, the desk to be clean because it's stressing you out that you all the stuff around the desk. Uh, whatever it is, I don't know. Um, could be something small. Could be something big. Uh, but the point is, remove it. Identify the obstacles and remove them. Identify the friction, everything that's kind of in the way, uh, preventing you, slowing you down in terms of getting into that space, that head space, that scheduled, that physical space maybe, uh, that scheduled creative practice. Identify the obstacles and remove them. Another thing that I think is foundational uh, it's just to do things. <laughs> like it sounds kind of stupid, but um, I'm a big believer in the power of doing things. And when I was young, this is one of the good things about me when I was young. I made a lot of mistakes when I was young. But one good thing about my youth was that I had the idea that I needed to keep doing things. If I just kept doing things, um, everything would be okay. Now, the second part of that is not true. <laughs> if you just keep doing things without discriminating about what you're doing, everything will not be okay. And you may cause a lot of pain and get on a lot of wrong roads. Uh, but uh, the good side of that is that if you just kind of keep doing things that are in line with where you want to go, you know, or are in line with uh, your kind of larger goals or vision. 
there's maybe better ways to work, but that is a way to work and it will get you somewhere, right? If you just keep doing things, you'll get somewhere um, as opposed to staying in one place. Now, the reverse of that is, or the kind of flip side of that, the evil flip side of that is if you're just doing a lot of things but not finishing anything. Uh, you're starting and not finishing. You're jumping from project to project and not really completing anything. If you're in that scenario, then really it looks like you're doing things, but you're not. Uh, but if you're doing things and finishing them and moving on to the next thing and finishing it, there's worse uh, ways to work in the world. Um, it's really important to start things and to not be afraid. Uh, not, I shouldn't say not be afraid of failure, which is what I was about to say. You should be afraid of failure. Um, but you should commit to failure nevertheless. You, know, you should understand failure as a natural state uh, for a writer, particularly. An artist of any stripe, really, but especially a writer. Most of the time you're going to fail. And most of the time you're going to uh, do a bad job. And that's just what the process is. Uh, people get very hung up on the idea that they're going to screw something up or fail, and they don't start. Um, I think it's important to not be delusional. And so to admit the possibility of failure and even recognize when you have failed. Um, but I think it's important to just commit to that. You know, commit to doing it anyway, despite failure. And I like to say, you know, why not just commit to failure? You know, commit to failure. Um, if your goal is to just do the thing and probably fail, well, even though you may fail, you will have done the thing. And you may succeed in that case. You may, you know, again, be sort of aiming for failure in a sense and accidentally succeed. If you are aiming at um, succeeding only, uh, you'll just paralyze yourself and you won't get anything done. You'll be afraid to start. Um, and you just have to become comfortable. Like in, in every, And in every case, ultimately, what you're going to end up doing is failing. There's no way to really um, properly do the thing that you want to do. You'll never satisfy yourself. If you feel fully satisfied with the piece of writing that you produced, um, just wait a week. <laughs> you know, just wait a week. Uh, if you still feel, you know, 100% satisfied a week or two weeks or, you know, a year down the line, you're simply delusional and have no taste, you know, uh, and you need to develop your taste. I, I meet all the time students, <clears throat> students in my classes come to my office and are, say to me, you know, I'm so, uh, I don't know what to do with my writing. You know, I just feel like everything I write is terrible because I look at these published books and I think they're so far beyond me. How could I ever get to that point? And they see it as a bad sign. They see like their failure in comparison to somebody else's success. Uh, and they take that as a bad sign. And I always try to point out to them that's actually a very good sign. If you can recognize how far you are from that other person, that means you have taste. And, and you can actually get to, maybe not there, you know, maybe you'll never be Cormac McCarthy, but if you can see how far you are from Cormac McCarthy, you've got some hope. The people who don't see that and think, you know, they're the next Cormac McCarthy. Those are the people who have no hope and will never succeed. Um, except by lottery or fluke. Or, you know, they will later develop that ability. 
uh, that taste to kind of recognize how far they are really. Um, if you're very, very confident in your writing, it's not bad, but it could be bad. <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily bad, but it could be bad. You know, I'm pretty confident in some of my writing. And other things I think, well, it's all right. And other things, you know, I just, you know, it was a failure. But even the stuff I'm really happy with, like my book Clockfire, I'm very happy with my book Clockfire. But if I were to go back in time and rewrite that book, there are things I'd do differently, you know? I think that's just how it is. Uh, I forget who said it. I don't know if it's clear, but I think it was Leonardo da Vinci that said it. But it is possible um, that it's another author, um, another artist. But I believe Leonardo da Vinci is the one who said that it, great artists never finished only abandoned and there's a lot of truth in that um but you know there's abandoning it to your drawer and abandoning it um to the world you know publishing it and abandoning it in a sense that way and there's abandoning it by never finishing and of those three uh never finishing is the worst by far better to finish and put it in a drawer and never show it to another person than to not finish it because you can't really learn unless you finish you can't make massive progress and move towards uh, being the kind of writer and the kind of artist you want to be unless you're in a regular practice of finishing things doesn't mean you have to show everybody everything i think it's a real misperception that people have um you know I look at poems as a simple example. I've probably written, I'd say conservative estimate is I've written 2,500 poems. Uh, a conservative estimate would be, you know, roughly 2,500 poems that I've completed. Um, of that, you know, 2,500 or so, I probably published, I would say, um, a good, you know, educated guess is I probably published seven, 800 of them. So let's say about a third. About a third of the poems I've written, I've probably published at this point. Um, and that includes like my books you know, and so on. I'm talking about pages of poetry and journals and books, etc. Then if you just look at books, you, know, you just look at this, you know, let's say what I consider my body of work. You know, the work that not has, not, I haven't put in a journal and nowhere else but I put it in a journal and maybe collect it in a book later or just stuff that's original to books. I would say probably my body of work in the sense of, you know, if you were to go look for my poetry, here's what you would find. You know, the non-super obscure stuff is maybe 400 uh, pieces, 400 pages, 500 pages on the outside. So think about it that way. Um, about a third of the work I've completed in poetry I've probably published somewhere. And about a fifth of it uh, I've actually published in a significant way. So really, if you want to look at it, almost everything I'm writing is some sort of failure in some way. Either I failed in my eyes and I just never bothered to publish it at all. Or I published it and then decided, you know what, that's a failure. I shouldn't have published it and decided not to republish it for some reason. There's a few exceptions, like just stuff that I think is good and haven't collected. But for the most part, you know, you've got a few crappy works out there. It's better than not having anything out there. And it's better than um, 
you, know, you have to be discerning still, and you have to uh, focus on quality and trying to produce quality work and have an eye for quality work. Uh, but ultimately, when you're young especially, or when you're starting out, or when you're just trying to get into, even if you've been writing for a long time, but you now want to be serious and you know take a kind of professional attitude towards your work, you have to focus on quantity over quality, um, or rather before quality. You focus on quantity, and that will get you to quality. Quantity begets quality. And that's where the schedule comes in. Uh, but that's also where having a priority, you know, a thing that you're kind of fundamentally practice to focus on uh, and committing to failure you know just being willing to fail so that you can start so that you can finish um, and then you can make some decisions about you know editing or publishing and the quality of the work something that goes along with this is the uh, idea that you should plan but not over plan so I'm a big believer in planning especially um, when it comes to writing so I believe in outlining before you write a book, for example. Um, you know, outlining a plot before you write a novel. I even outline short stories now, which I never used to do. Uh, it works. It works so much better. Um, you should have a plan. Uh, maybe your plan is, you know, a less detailed one than an outline. Maybe you're not even at that stage yet. You're just sort of getting the inkling of an idea. You're trying to think, you know, maybe you said book idea, and you're trying to think, you know, through... What is this book going to be? I think it helps while you're doing your schedule and working on something else as your priority. In the back of your mind, have some other projects, sure. Uh, before you dump, jump into those projects, spend a little bit of time kind of thinking about what they really are. What are they really at their heart? You know, what is that novel you want to write really about in its secret, dark heart? The thing that is important to get to uh, before you begin a, a creative project, or at some point during the creative project, sometimes you can wait till the editing process for this, and you know you maybe just want to run on instinct and work uh, on it. Um, but at some point, ideally before you really start working, um, but possibly just before you really start editing. You need to get to a place where you know what the project is. You know, if you're working on a book, what is the book in its fundamental heart? And if you know that, if you can have a clear way to understand the book uh, and a clear, you know, if you can describe it in a couple sentences, if you can explain it to somebody else, you know, they say, hey, what are you working on? You say, oh, oh, this is what I'm working on. If you have things to say that are clear and comprehensible in that moment, which a lot of people don't have, uh, but if you can get to the point where you have those things, you can say clearly what your book is about. It really helps a lot uh, towards the creative process for that book because you start to get a sense of what goes in, what stays out. You know, there's a selection process that is possible now. And it's not just selection in terms of editing, what do you keep and what do you throw away in this draft, what do you maybe need to add or whatever. But selection in terms of that, you know, again, the recipe, you know, what should I put in here? Um, what do I need to take out? Uh, what is the filter, the idea... If you can have a vision for the idea, the vision acts as a filter. 
And the clearer you can get with that, uh, the better your writing will go and the easier editing will go. It won't be easy, but it'll still have a directed um just a directed approach in a practical and analytical way you can approach the work now as opposed to just operating on instinct because instinct will get you so far but then at a certain point it'll just start producing cliches you know by instinct you'll just do the things you've seen before after a certain point you know you'll copy by instinct and that's fine sometimes and fine to a degree you know um copying in many ways is at the heart of creative practice I, mean, I wrote a whole book on this so i'm not going to go into it too much but my book john pays crime wave is an academic monograph about a film called crime wave by a guy named john pays um but at its very hard it's about um how creative art stems from uh, the procedure of copying and being original in many ways has to do with copying but very particular type of copying that you know kind of engulfs and transmutes uh, the things that it's copying. So, whatever your vision for the story is, or the poem, or the book, or whatever project you're working on, if you can get that vision clear, uh, even just in a f- its basic concept, uh, it really helps you plan. And then the other th- side of planning is having you know it helps to have a plan in the sense of like, how many words are you going to write today? You know, when are you going to write those words? Is it feasible to write, you know, 50,000 words by such and such a date? Or is that too many words? And you have to do, change the date or change the amount. If you have a plan, again, you can see into the future in some way. Uh, that's an immeasurable help. But um, if you don't have a plan... It still is feasible to just start. And one of the big dangers is overplanning. You want to plan, but you don't want to overplan. You don't, you don't want the planning to become a replacement for creation. Sometimes it's easy if you have an ambitious project uh, to feel like you need to do more planning before you can really jump into it. Again, just use the example of research. Um, a lot of times people feel like they have to do more research before they can start. And you've, I'm sure, had that in your life uh, where you were doing a project and you just kept doing research. You just kept doing research. There's always another thing you felt you needed to learn before you dived into the project. I used to see this all the time when I was working on my PhD. Uh, people who ha- you know, hadn't written hardly anything in their PhD dissertation, uh, but you know they're working every week on it. You know they're working every week, every week, in and out, eight hours a day, reading, 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 researching, researching, researching. That's great and everything, but you got to do the writing while you're doing that. If you can't write and research at the same time, you need to learn how. That's the basics of it. And maybe I'll do an episode on that specifically, but um, don't let the planning become a method of procrastination. And don't fool yourself into thinking that other things are writing. Writing is writing. Everything else is not writing. And if you ever find yourself talking to a person 
who says, well, you know, sometimes writing is just going for a walk. And sometimes writing is, you know, just kind of reading. And sometimes writing is um, doing research. They're wrong. Those things are important, and they're part of the creative process. They are connected to the writing process, and they are not to be discounted. You have to be reading. You have to be doing research. You have to go on walks, maybe, you know, and have that downtime uh, where you're sort of unconsciously processing things and even just playing around with ideas. You know, you, ha- you need that non-writing time where you, you're in a very specific uh, set of ways doing work that is part of the creative process and contributing to the writing. But it isn't writing. Only writing is writing. Uh, and that's what you need to schedule. You may need to schedule other stuff too. Maybe you have to schedule your research time. Maybe you got a ton of research to do. Uh, you know, maybe you need to have all those walks. But that's not writing. And so, uh, by all means, do that stuff. But do not th- fool yourself into thinking that it is writing. Only writing is writing. And you don't need to have the master plan all laid out. You just need to have the kernel of the idea clarified and you need to know the next step. What is the next thing that I have to do if I want to write um, you know, my vampire novel uh, set in uh, 2087 when these aliens attack? If that's your ridiculous idea that you're going to pursue, just, you know, you need to clarify that idea a little bit so you know exactly what it is you're trying to do. You need to schedule when you're going to work on it um, and how you're going to prioritize your working time in that manner. And you need to know the next thing. Maybe the next thing is you just make a schedule of when you're going to write. Maybe the next thing is you're going to write an outline of the plot. Maybe the next thing is uh, you're going to go, you know, read some Ray Bradbury or, or, or Richard Matheson, you know, other futuristic vampire novels. You're going to work on some other project while you do this research for this project. Uh, whatever the next thing is, uh, you just need to know what that is. You don't need to know the 80,000 steps. What I see, especially when people get into this kind of mode, master planning mode, is likely to call it, you know, you get into world domination mode and all of a sudden you're, you haven't written a thousand words yet, but you're trying to figure out what agent you're going to send the submission to. Now you're researching agents. That's great and everything. You know, you should have a sense of what agents are out there and maybe who would be amenable to this project but you don't need to be doing that next you know that's something you can do in your free time if you feel like it but it's not going to help you um, right now it's just going to clutter up the process so uh, you want to plan but you don't want to over plan you want to be wary of just you know, casting about and having no idea what you're doing and just writing a bunch of garbage. Um, although garbage is better than nothing. You know, it'd be nice to have an outline so that you don't 
uh, mess around with all these other things. You're writing a bunch of scenes that don't fit in the novel, for example. Um, but uh, you don't need to you know, have a 60-page outline necessarily, right? It could just be one piece of paper with some notes. You know, I would usually advise more detail than that, but you don't need to know everything. You don't need to know what publisher would take this book. You don't need to know um, everything about vampires. You don't need to have read every Alien Attacks book would help but it's not necessary you just need to know what the next step is uh, and you need to focus on completing the next step in a novel project that may or may not just be the next scene you don't have to write linearly that's a mistake sometimes people make they think they have to write you know one thing then the next thing and then the next thing and write their you know pages in order you don't have to do that um whatever your next step is you need to have it clear in your head otherwise again you sit down in your scheduled writing time you don't know what you're supposed to do so i think at bare minimum you need to know when you're going to write next what you're going to write next and you know your task within that uh, writing time what's your priority project when are you working on it and what's the next step or task uh, one thing people say to me a lot is they're going to write a book. And I always say to them, it's impossible to write a book. Uh, what you can do, uh, like in an hour, it's impossible to write a book, for example. You know, they'd say, oh, I'm going to write my book Tuesday morning uh, from 3 to, or, you know, I'm going to write from 6 to 7 in the morning on Tuesdays. That's when I'm going to write my book. You know, you're not going to write a book in that time. You can write a couple words. You can write a scene, maybe. You can't write a book. So if you sit down thinking, I'm going to write this book, you're going to paralyze yourself. And you're going to feel like you're not getting anything done. But if you sit down thinking, I'm going to write 200 words in, you know, chapter 7 when the aliens attack, that's a feasible, manageable task that you can accomplish. So I really urge you to do uh, that sort of planning the kind of next step planning you can accomplish really ambitious projects this way maybe you got some massive nightmare um 10 book series each book's a thousand pages long one of those things and, you know i don't know how about you but that would paralyze me to start sitting down and think george r, r. martin is a perfect example of a guy who's kind of become paralyzed by the massive ambition of the project he's undertaken um what you need to do is not think about how the TV show is going to overtake you and, uh, you know, how you've still got 5,000 pages left to write or whatever. You just sit down and think, okay, um, today uh, Daenerys is going to eat a chicken. And that's the scene. And then start writing that. Because that's a manageable, I don't know why, if she's a chicken or not, but yeah, that's a manageable thing. There are many other things, of course, you know, it would help to do as a writer. And of course, if you have a complicated project or a complicated problem, um, you need to get beyond the foundations and beyond the basics. One thing I didn't really talk about is how to market your work, which is a foundational thing. Uh, and if you want to be professional in some way, you have to not just be writing work and producing work on some regular basis, but you have to be getting that work out there. But first comes producing work on a regular basis. And I want to just make that very clear. And that's why I wanted to talk about it in this first uh, podcast episode. Before anything else, you need a creative practice. 
and you need in that creative practice to be completing work on a regular basis. You don't necessarily have to compare yourself to other people and their productivity and how often they're publishing books or how often they're putting out articles or how much they're blogging or whatever it is they're doing. Um, Don't compare yourself to other people like that. Except insofar as, hmm, I want to have that person's career. How often do they have to do things? Maybe I'm going to aim towards that level of productivity. I can't maybe start there. I'm going to aim towards that level of productivity. And I'm going to start where I am, able to start now, and move in that direction. You need to have uh, a practice that's going to allow you to complete work on some sort of regular basis. How frequently you're completing what uh, is a very malleable thing. Uh, foundational is just the act of completing, uh, which, again, underneath it, foundationally, you have the act of writing. Writing, not not writing. And the last thing I'll say about all this is uh, just to go back to the topic of failing. The real trick of being an artist is to concern yourself with everyday failure in the sense of committing to an everyday failure. Every day you need to do some work that you will feel on some level is a failure. You know, you have to just commit to failing on that daily basis or that weekly basis. Commit to not fully realizing the vision that you have. You know, you'll never really match what's in your head. But you just have to understand that and you have to just keep trying and just kind of commit and become comfortable with that everyday failure of not quite living up to your own expectation of what the work should be, but instead accepting that it is what it is. And the true failure that you need to avoid is the failure of not working, you know, the failure of quitting. I always say it to people, if they ask, what's the secret of success? Like, how do people become massive successes? I like to say, if you look at people who have become massive successes, you could go back and look in history at what did they do to become, you know, the standout successes that they are. People throw around a lot of different things, you know, the 10,000-hour rule or whatever else. I think it boils down to a very simple concept. You don't quit and you don't die. If you just don't quit and don't die, then your chances of success shoot through the roof. But if you quit and die, you know, you can overcome death, ironically, like Kafka overcame death. But you can't overcome quitting. Well, that's the first episode of my podcast. Uh, I want to thank you very much for listening. Um, And I would like you to know that if you want to get more information about anything I really mentioned in any details, so you want the link um, to those blog posts I mentioned, if you want the... um, ebook that you can get through signing up through my newsletter about writing schedules if you want anything at all uh, just to kind of know more about this particular episode you can go to jonathanball.com slash one so jonathanball.com slash one that's the show notes uh, for this episode you can find more information about the podcast writing the wrong way 
uh, at writingtherongway.com. That's going to give you a list of all the podcasts, posts, and episodes that are out. Um, I'm launching this, but my plan is to launch this podcast with multiple episodes already. So if you've listened to this uh, first, as soon as it came out, you should be able to access two more episodes, uh, most likely. Um, so the first three episodes should already be out uh, and just posted you know, very quickly uh, in succession, if not already out by now. Uh, if you listen to this later, of course, you know you might have a host of other things to listen to. Um, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Uh, please um, tell people about this podcast. You know, I'm going to just keep doing it, like I said before, whether people are listening or not. But of course, it would be great if people were listening, uh, and it would help you know to get some feedback from you. You can always contact me uh, for any reason, um, suggest shows or any other thing you want to talk to me about. Uh, I'm Jonathan Ball. My email is just jonathan at jonathanball.com. So I'm sometimes a little slow to reply, but I do reply. Um, So please draw me a line, subscribe to the podcast, tell people about uh, the things that I'm doing here, um, and let me know what you think and what you would like uh, me to do in the future. Uh, I'm going to play you out with the song, uh, the full song, that I had at the start as my sort of opening music. Um, I didn't mention it then, but the song is by Electric Candles, uh, which uh, basically was a guy named Patrick Short, a friend of mine. His name is Patrick Short. He's now in a sort of synth band he does called Kindest Cuts. So I really recommend Kindest Cuts. Uh, Go check them out. Again, there'll be information, link for them in the show notes. This is a totally different type of music, though. This is his previous band, really indie band. You can't find this music anywhere, um, unfortunately. But this is a band called Electric Candles, uh, also Patrick Short, you know, and some other uh, collaborators. Um, this song is We Got the Poison, uh, and I love this song. So Pat's doing guitar and singing. I'm not sure what else he's doing on this track, but I know he's at least guitar and singing. He might be everything. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but We Got the Poison, Patrick Short, Electric Candles. Thank you very much, Mr. Short. Um, I'm just going to play you guys out with this song, so you can check out the whole thing if you want. Um, But this is a show. Thanks. Uh, And I'll see you next week. Uh, And keep writing the wrong way. (laughs) 